You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hello, Stella. How are you doing? Good. How are you in America? I'm doing well. We're, we're well over here. Um, of course, it's a little bit crazy right now at the beginning of 2021, but we are getting through it. Yeah. So today we are covering the politicization of gender. And, um, you know, you and I have been discussing this topic. And, uh, you know, I thought it was fair to start by saying neither of us are historians, we're not legal scholars. We're not political scientists. So there's probably a lot today that we'll discuss and then lots that we'll miss as well. But the point is we wanted to highlight some important developments um, in the history of feminism and gender politics and then talk about the psychological aspects. Does that seem right? Yeah, I think it's really important to know where we're coming from. Because when we know where we're coming from, you know, the way they say, you know, those who who don't study history are condemned to repeat it. I think it's true. And I think although they also say those who do study history are condemned to watch it being repeated. And I think that's me (laughs) (laughs) because I am interested in history. I'm no historian, but I am interested in where it all came from. So will we will we get at it? Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to say, you know, whenever whenever we think about politicization, we have to understand that when there's any kind of discrimination based on someone's characteristics, those characteristics do become political. You know, throughout history, as we see people recognizing disparities and trying to kind of equalize opportunities, the characteristics that are being discriminated against become kind of a political symbol and and a source of political power to a degree. So this is not new with gender. This has happened in every kind of rights struggle or, you know, legal uh, struggle that we've had in the past. And maybe at this point, we'll go way back, Stella. Do you want to fill us in on some early feminist history here? I do. So if we go ba- way back, I know that even in the 15th century, the the Italian writer, Christine de Pizan, she was the first person to take a pen up in defense of her sex. But really what happened in the first wave of feminism was in the 19th century. And middle class white females in the UK and in the US got together and they were right. They needed to. And they got together to kind of defend against their property rights to defend against the ownership of married women by their husbands and to find the suffrage, women's suffrage, the right to vote. And the right to vote through peaceful and constitutional means was started in the 19th century, late 19th century, by the suffragists. And people often talk about the split. And, there's, you know, there's a famous quote by uh, the uh, Brenda Behan, the Irish writer, who said the first the first uh, point on every liberal agenda is the split. And so there's a split almost immediately because the suffragists were peaceful. Through peaceful and constitutional means, they wanted to uh, get the right to vote and they got nowhere. And then in the 20th century, 1903, Emmeline Pankhurst founded the British Women's Social and Political Union. And it was a woman only movement 
key sentence. And it was founded to engage in direct action and civil disobedience. They wanted to avoid harming people, but they were effectively civil terrorists. They were certainly very militant. And the film Suffragette in 2015 is a really good analysis of what the suffragettes did. But they did really extraordinary stuff. They they cut telephone wires, burned down houses of politicians and, and um, members of society. They set cricket pavilions alight. They cut telephone wires. It was very middle class. They burned the letter boxes. They slashed paintings and art galleries, which I think is kind of laughably middle class, destroyed <laughs> exhibitions at the British Museum. But they did worse things. They planted bombs in St. Paul's Cathedral. They planted bombs in Westminster Abbey. And, you know, the most, probably the most famous um, suffragette action was when Emily Davidson threw herself under the King's horse at the Epsom Derby in 1913 and she died from her injuries. And a lot of them were imprisoned and a lot of them were force fed when they were imprisoned. And I, as an Irish person who has kind of watched the, the Northern Ireland, the six counties, the troubles, I don't know how much you know about that, but I've watched, you know, the hunger strikers when I was a kid. And it was a pivotal moment in my life when I saw people who were all, they were all men, but they were all died in their twenties from hunger strike because of political action. And when you see people who are willing to die for the political action psychologically, I think that is fascinating. And it, it, it is, it's frightening. But sometimes I'm really confused about where my point is. And I'm really interested, where do you come in on kind of the, the extremism that is needed for political movement to take place, but it's psychologically dysfunctional by anybody's prism? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, I'm thinking about how even on a psychological individual level, sometimes we are going about in life and let's say, you know, a person is in a really abusive relationship or something. In order to remedy that problem, sometimes radical action does need to be taken. And so to move in a, a positive direction, sometimes it does require like really disruptive um breaking of norms. And it's hard because I, I also have such a hard time having been born in the 80s and living my life when I did. It's hard to imagine what life would have been like as a woman before this time period where your entire existence is completely relegated to uh, a small domestic sphere. And I imagine there was probably a lot of internal conflict and maybe exhilaration for women who are watching these events unfold and thinking, oh my gosh, like maybe, maybe my life can also be part of this, this society rather than just being part of home. And you're right, it's required, but it's probably psycho psychologically dysfunctional. I want to do any of these great heroes, and I'm talking about the great heroes in history. Did any of them have psychologically functional homes or households, mm. because um, do you need to be to be radicalized to the point of bringing about big political change? You know, do you need to be a little bit mad? You know, <laughs> W.B. Yeats, the poet said, you know, hearts with one purpose alone, they end up like stones, if you, if you, you know, and there is truth in it. There is truth in it. And I, I bow to these great heroes. I'm frightened by them because I know how unhappy their households probably were without any knowledge of them. But I, I know radicalist feminist, radical extremist, definitely not feminist, is a really problematic 
place to be in a psychological sense. It was needed and it was also very difficult. I know Simone, Simone de Beauvoir wrote that great book in 1949, The Second Sex, where one is not born a woman, but becomes one. And she kind of analysed the social construction of a woman as the other. And in many, many ways, that's the founding kind of concept around radical feminism. And then Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique criticised the idea that women could only find fulfilment through child rearing and homemaking. And the second wave of feminism came in in the 1960s or so. And that's when the personal, the personal became political. And that was the great phrase. The personal is political. And the women's liberation movement, which is what it was called, moved from the 1960s to the 1980s. And it was so, and this is really interesting for anybody who's interested in pol- politics. The women were demeaned as bra burners. They were they were dismissed as as kind of what are they called um, feminist feminazis feminazis mm-hmm. and feminazis. things like that. It's so nasty how it was. While the second wave was really focusing on what we now consider pretty normal stuff, such as ending discrimination, viewing women's and political and cultural kind of issues kind of inextricably, encourage women to understand aspects of their personal life as being very politicised and reflecting sexist power structures. That's not big, but they were dismissed as Brad-Berman feminazis. And so we have to be very careful when early pioneers of a concept are being dismissed mm-hmm. and being dismissed and derided and mocked because that's how they're usually, you know. Mm-hmm. In the 1960s, the birth of radical feminism and liberal feminism began. Liberal feminism is kind of mainstream feminism, which was trying to work within the power structures, within the legal system as it was, while radical feminism was saying, right, let's change it all. <laughs> let's absolutely re- renegotiate the entire um, ordering of society because male supremacy needs to be eliminated in all social and economic contexts. Now, in 2021, we're in the kind of hotbed between lib femmes and rad femmes. Well, certainly you and I are. Yes, <laughs> we that are. That was the beginning of it all. And there were some great books written around that. But there was a split happening where the liberal feminism saying we work with what we got. The radical feminism were saying we can't. We need to reorder the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I keep remember. Going. <laughs> I remember, um, you know, starting to be interested in these topics pretty young, probably in high school. And I remember being in university and I don't remember what it was that I read, but I read a book about political lesbianism and compulsory heterosexuality. And, and what I remember is that the ideas in this book on some level felt very intriguing and enticing and, of course, radical, and also a little bit scary. I remember reading that every single time a man and a woman have sexual relationships together, that it is rape, just because of the power and domination of men in kind of a, when, when women are a sex class. And so I think the reason why you know, some people are very dismissive of of whatever kind of social philosophy or political philosophy is that when we really distill these things down to some of their most radical points, they very much disrupt our, our kind of common constitution of what we think of about the relationship between male and female. So there's a lot of really radical information in here. And um, it's just... I think it's just uh, our constitutions don't know what to do with that kind of information. And within the radicals, you're so right, within these radical concepts, some are brilliant genius concepts and some are not. 
with a capital N. And we, it's only time and discourse and analysis that takes, you know, the, the, the good from the bad that analyzes it. And that's why we need a world where we can have podcasts. Thankfully, we can podcasts like this where we can actually analyze what's going on. So then in the third wave in the 1990s, it was kind of a reaction to the perceived failures of the second wave, which was the 1960s to the 80s, where they kind of said there's too much emphasis on the middle class white female. And we need a bit of intersectionality and we need some micro politics. We need to look in black feminism raised its uh, raised its head and said, hey, what about us? Dead right. Absolutely kind of dismissed and disregarded. Working class feminism certainly got its strength. In the meantime, w- w- when feminism was always growing, there was always a Marxist socialist edge to feminism that were saying, what about the working class woman? And mm-hmm. I still don't think they have their voice, really. Yeah. I really do. I don't think they've had their 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 era yet. I want to say, yeah, I I think you're right. And I want to say something about that. You know, um, when you think about the plight of these middle class white women and what they were struggling for, their societies had always kind of put them on this pedestal of fragility. Whereas black women around this time had a completely different experience insofar as they were seen as very rugged and not really injurable. And they were seen as these kind of tough people who didn't need protections, actually, and that they were really, in their feminism, they needed something almost exactly opposite of what the white feminists wanted and needed. So I think it's so important to understand intersectionality. It's gone off the rails today. But the idea of examining each group and the different kinds of pressures and life experiences of people in that group is crucial if we really want to have a clear and true understanding of, you know, everybody's situation. Because I, for example, as a highly educated person who speaks English very well, citizen with all of my rights, my experience is totally different from, you know, clients I've had whose parents are undocumented immigrants. They barely speak English. They work three or four jobs. And I mean, the, the life experiences are so dramatically different. So I think intersectionality needs to be given its credit. And to give further complexity, you're not, you know, you're, you're an ethnic minority as far as you're Egyptian, even mm-hmm. though you are white and are, are you white? I don't know what you, what mm-hmm. you are at this stage. I'm afraid of those, those words <laughs> at this stage. Yeah. But you, you know, you do have your own nuances as, as a kind of coming from uh, another ethnicity. And yet you're saying, I have all this privilege. So there's so many nuances. And I'm delighted that in the 1990s, they said, yeah, we need to bring some nuance into this. And so they did. And uh, the, the internal debates began to really kick off at this stage about whether there are important differences between the sexes or are there no inherent differences between the sexes and gender roles are just due to social conditioning? And that's a massive question and we don't know it. But when you started talking there about, you know, the black feminist issue is so different, I would immediately think as an Irish woman of and the Irish woman's issues 
the feminist issues of the Irish woman was very different. We were absolutely bowed down by the church. There's a terrible scandal that, you know, has uh, erupted in Ireland. It's January 2021 now. And like they've just released this report, 3000 page report on all these mother and baby homes where women, young, mostly poor, but not always poor, but definitely downtrodden women who were very much kind of from a patriarchal society, from the church to the doctor to the teacher, um, very much pushing these women who were unmarried into homes. The children were taken from them, forcibly adopted, often to America, sold to America. Um, for example, in one small town in Ireland, very near me, 796 babies were found buried in a septic tank from oh, this mother gosh. and baby home. One mother and baby oh. home. In a, you know, so like what happened to those mothers and babies was ferocious. And where was feminism talking about them? You, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that all those issues started to kick off and it started to kind of become very complicated. And women's studies, which was such, I'd say, a happy place between the 1960s and 80s. I know it would have been really difficult insofar as all the uh, oppression they had to fight against, but they really were very united, unified. And the women's room, Marilyn French, when that was released in 1977, we all loved it. Oh, well, maybe this is very much my non-feminist view and maybe real deep feminists will tell me there was terrible splits. But it certainly feels like although there was lots of splits, it was very theoretical and very interesting academically. And it has become a lot less interesting academically. And now it's become very, very ferocious and bloodthirsty to what it is now. That would be my feeling that it 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 has changed and the academic has become bitter. And we see that with, let's say, Kathleen Stock. You know, she's a great radical feminist. She's an academic. And, you know, she, there's been so much written about her and it's become so demeaning. It really reminds me of the way the women were demeaned in the 1960s of Sprabberners. And they're called feminazis and they're just so dismissed. And the very same, that radical feminists now are being very, very dismissed and they're making some absolutely powerful points about male privilege, about genital differences between human beings, whether they should matter culturally, whether they matter in, in the first place. And what is the root cause of women's oppression? While all of this was going on, the, the transgender revolution was taking place. And also, if you go back to the 1960s, when the women's liberation movement was happening, the lesbian gay liberation movement was happening. And that really, it's often seen as the beginning of that was, stop me if I'm boring, but that's seen as in 1969 with the Stonewall riots. Started pivotally by uh, Stormy, who is a butch lesbian, who, who when the police came to break them up, she turned around and said, why don't you guys do something? And she started the riot with that. What yeah. a great line. Why don't you guys do something? And yeah. Stormy started it with that. And she was a butch lesbian. And in a weird piece of queering the theory and queering the history, that has been rewritten. And people have said trans, a trans, trans people started the Stonewall rights when it's very well documented exactly mm -hmm. what happened. Well, we're going to touch on that in the next episode where we dive into queer theory, which is all about examining historical facts and literature from a binary breaking perspective. So we'll talk about that more. But I think it's important that we talk about how LGBT rights started. I mean, really, these were true underdogs, right? Um, kind of these grassroots organizations that are 
fighting for recognition, fighting for having a place in society. And luckily, these organizations started to get more attention and more funding, I think, if we fast forward around the time of the AIDS crisis, where all of a sudden, there's this huge global crisis that is bringing attention to um, the needs of the gay community, in this case, particularly gay men. But I think these organizations that were started began to actually garner the funding and the attention that they needed. Well, that's very interesting. I do think you're right. I think they got the funding. But before they got the funding, they got the concept. And it seems to me from what I've studied, and I'd be very interested in, in any of our listeners' responses who could tell us more. But certainly in 1993, when the transsexual menace began, and it was a very wittily named group because they were being funny, calling themselves the transsexual menace. And they were very funny anyway. They were clever mm. and funny and frankly, marketing geniuses, if you ask me. They had T-shirts, they had media attention, they knew what they were at and they they decided they wanted to be part of the gay and lesbian rights marches. Was this in the US, Stella? Yeah, this is in okay. New York, in Manhattan. Okay. They wanted, and they called themselves the transsexual menace as a nod to a phrase called the lavender menace, which was a group of lesbians who wanted to make sure that the feminists back in the 1970 uh, included lesbian issues. So as a very clever nod to the lavender menace, which was the lesbians, they called themselves the transsexual menace basically saying, we're one of you, we're transsexuals and we're one of you, we're just like the lavender menace, we're, the, we're LGB and T. And up until then, it was gay liberation, it was LGB, um, that was the common name, what was it? Gay, gay lesbian rights was the phrase I think I used certainly way back then. I'm mm -hmm. trying to think there was different names and phrases, but certainly T didn't come into it. And they made sure T came into it. And even then, like they were picketing and they were trans women. There was no sign of trans men in, at this point. This was very much. And that would statistically be appropriate because at the point, that point, really trans men were not transitioning in very high numbers and they weren't very notable in society or in politics. While the trans women, and you could only see the male brand of pushiness from the <laughs> trans women. And it was brilliant. But the, what they did was they pushed in. They pushed in. So, the, for example, there was a place called the Gay Games where LGB people were having, you know, Olympic Games effectively. And they insisted that they should be part of it. And women pushed back saying that trans women shouldn't be part of the Gay Games and they were pushed out. But four years later, they got back in. They knew what they were doing. They were very, very clever around what is needed. And let's say there was, an, there was a piece published by Esquire about transgender activism in 1995. And they called themselves, the title was The Third Sex. Now the men who have decided that they are actually women are on the march. Welcome to the transgender revolution. They picketed the Esquire's offices, made sure the story came down and made sure that they got a public apology. And they were very, very strong in their activism. And they knew what they were about. And then somewhere around then, you're right about the funding. They got an awful lot of funding. They said LGBT. Mm -hmm. And can we have some of that money, please? I want to point something out. What year was that when when you the quote you just read? 1995. 
Okay. It's interesting that in, in the last several decades, you go from the language that says men who decide they're women <laughs> to what we have today, which is trans women are women. And in some circles, trans women are more real than biological women in their womanliness. And, and crucially, trans women have trans misogyny, which is worse than biological misogyny. That's yeah. the argument that's put forward. So they've got double. Rather than they have some male privilege, which, for example, Dame Jenny, Jenny Murphy, Murray argued from Radio 4, she said that trans women have some male privilege because they lived their lives as males for a certain number of years. They say, no, 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 no. We are worse. We're worse off because we have trans misogyny. Mm-hmm. So we've, mm-hmm. we've kind of double misogyny. So it does feel very clever, but it also feels like... We needed analysis and debate and thoughtful discussion about where exactly are we going. For example, when the the trans women argued that they shouldn't have to, and I'm quoting, jump through a series of demeaning hoops by providing medical records and a hormone test and full gender verification regime, they shouldn't have to do that to join the gay games, they said. And that's a really interesting point because they do have, if you have testosterone, you have better muscular musculature, you've, you've, your lungs are bigger, your, your skeleton is different, your hips are narrower, your upper body strength is stronger. There's huge issues around trans women competing against women. Now, is it right or is it wrong? I don't know, but we certainly need a massive amount of analysis to figure out how we're going to... F- how are we going to go forward with this? And the shutting down of debate is where it got very interesting. And they were shutting down debate in 1995. And then let's say Julie Bindle wrote her article in 2004. That's considered a hugely um, pivotal article. Did you want to say any more about the funding around the AIDS and stuff like that? Because I, I didn't know very much about that, but I do know the funding is a huge issue for lesbians because when you've seen the analysis of what amount of money is going towards lesbians versus what amount of money is going towards trans people are getting the most by a long shot. Now we're in 2021 mm-hmm. and then it goes to gay and then lesbian are getting tiny numbers of funding. And that's frightening. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I know that there are, you know, huge amounts of money being poured into advocacy groups that, that make it their mission to push trans issues to the top of the agenda for political purposes. You know, we see in America, and I'm curious how this unfolds in in Ireland, but here in America, in the most recent election, you see that politicians, certain politicians are falling all over themselves to parrot the kind of statements that are supposedly in in service of trans rights. So you hear politicians making it part of their agenda to discuss the transitioning of children. And I'm pretty sure that if you took some of these politicians yeah. and sat down with a with them one-on-one and described and explained everything behind those statements, they would not be in support of putting children on puberty blockers and guaranteeing they'll be lifelong medical patients. And yet, due to the power of, you know, the political sphere, these politicians are kind of terrified to to anger their donors. I mean, I'd love to talk a little bit about how divided politics is here in the U.S. Can we discuss that a little bit? 
Yeah, please do, because it's fascinating from over here. Yeah. You know, there's a moral psychologist. I'm not saying he's a moral person, but he studies moral psychology, Jonathan Haidt. Um, And he wrote this interesting piece with a political scientist named Sam Abrams. And they were talking about why is it that in, in, you know, the 2020s, American politics is so divided. And they, they identified a couple of features. So they talked about how, you know, um, there are moral foundations that we develop first. So we all have kind of a moral sense of what we think is right or wrong. And this is justified after the fact with rationalizations. And I just think this is important in our political discussion because we should not be fooled to think that all the decisions people make about how they vote or what policies they agree with are based on rationality. These are based on what our gut tells us first, and then we use kind of post hoc rationalization after. So this is well known in the field of psychology that we develop our instinct or our gut feeling first. But they discuss in this article how in the 80s and 90s, the political parties really started to diverge and become ideologically purified. So there's kind of less overlap in the value systems of each of these political parties. So there's also a growing divide between, you know, urban and rural voters and things like immigration and increased ethnic diversity caused people to feel more politically divided. There was also, we know now, a lot of political animosity against, you know, partisan politics. So if you are a Republican, you are pretty convinced that the Democrats are the worst. And if you're a Democrat, you're convinced the Republicans are the worst. So there was just a lot of divisiveness, which I think the media really came in to capitalize on. Yeah. We saw a shift in the news media, and I'm so curious about Ireland if it's like yeah. this, but here in the U.S., we have news stations that have 24-7 news cycles, and it's the job of this station to entertain you, to provide like this very uh, intense entertainment partisan. value. Yeah, yeah. it seems very partisan in America. You're, you're, you're tuning into one or the other, is that right? Absolutely. And not only is it partisan, but these news programs, to me, run a little bit more like some kind of like a reality show, shock, shock value. It doesn't feel like a neutral, calm reading of the news. It's very intense. It's very over the top. And the the kind of pundits become characters that are Mm. really supposedly champions of the oppressed people. And this is true on both sides. I mean, there's Republican identity politics just as much. I mean, I think the left has gotten a little bit worse, in my opinion, probably just based on what I've experienced with my work. But everyone's playing this identity politics game. And the news media has contributed tremendously to how polarized things are. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I know I, I analysed it in, in, in my book, Cotton Mill Kids, which was released in 2015. And then I re-explored it in my book, Fragile, which was released in 2019, because Fragile is all about anxiety and how much the news is producing anxiety and media is producing anxiety. But for, for Ireland, let's say we have public broadcasting. Does your public broadcasting service not give good news, like non-partisan? Our public broadcasting service seems to be avoiding the topics that are really controversial in some ways or just reporting what kind of soothes public opinion, which, 
you know, we talked about this previously in collective collusion. There's this impression of what the majority thinks, but I think privately there's a lot more Yikes. conflict. Well, in, 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 in my study of what's happened is around about the late 80s, news became 24 hour, certainly in Ireland and in England and Europe. Maybe it was in Europe before then. And once it became 24 hour and once there was news channels, mm-hmm. news became an entertainment. And when they realized entertainment, the phrase you know, that famous media phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. So they got something scary to lead the headlines constantly to keep keep people watching. And that was from the late 1980s onwards, certainly in my part of the world. And it has really impacted our anxiety levels, our stress levels, our view of the world. Like I saw this plaintive tweet on Twitter the other day, which was saying, was was the other generations, anybody who's over 30, was the other generations like this? Or did you know, did you? And I, I said, absolutely. My God, we had the Iraq war. We had, you know, mm-hmm. we had global, huge amount of global warming um, fears. We had an awful lot of AIDS crisis. We had so many other things going on, wars. And actually, this is the safest time ever, believe it or not. Actually, mm-hmm. we've never been healthier. Actually, there's never been less infant mortality. And actually, you know, we have never been better off. But by the because of the news bleeding and leading the constantly, it has freaked everybody out. So we're in this awful frenzy of anxiety, which has really impacted. But we've lost ourselves in the gender. So I want to go back a little bit. Oh, wait, but, but before one. we move on, this is so important. Yeah. This is how we've also politicized suicide. And the suicide threat for trans trans identified kids. And this is so important because, you know, the CDC here in America has guidelines about how you are supposed to report on suicide because we know suicide sadly spreads by social contagion. So some of the guidelines include, you know, not glamorizing the victim, not simplifying the reasons they killed themselves, not, um, you know, offering too much praise for this, because we know that that can become really tempting to young people who are in conflict. So, you know, before we move away from this, I just wanted to lift that up because this is part of the political narrative around trans, that if you don't do A, B, and C, that these kids are going to kill themselves. And not only is that false, because we know that the statistics don't really indicate that, but it's also dangerous. So in the service of a political agenda, to keep repeating this phrase at the risk of actually causing damage to young people's lives, I just think that's so irresponsible. And further than that, it's actually making an awful lot of young, impressionable, vulnerable people very, very um, anxious and very scared. And it's really not helping it's really not helping. And it's something that's really important. And what you lifted about, you know, Jonathan Haidt and all that sort of stuff, it's really shown how this anxious world is being led by a media that it's kind of, insofar as they are, they're cashing in on the polarization of, of, of politics. And gender has fallen into it. It fell into it. Like I say, with the Julie Bindle article in 2004, she was expressing her anger about Kimberly Nixon. And Kimberly Nixon is a trans woman who was expelled from her training as a rape crisis counsellor for the Vancouver Rape Relief. And uh, they had overturned because she had um, she had tried to train as a counsellor of female rape victims. And she was a 
trans woman, so she wasn't biologically female. And she won $7,500, the highest amount ever awarded by a tribunal for injuries to her dignity when she um, was expelled from this rape training program. And then that got overturned ultimately. And the Vancouver Rape Relief Centre has, has had extraordinary attacks to it. And, you know, there's been an awful lot about that in recent years, and we'll go back to that. But this was way back in 2004. And Julie Bindle's article, while it's flippant and casual, it's actually also very funny. And she talks about an issue that I think is still very, very uh, uh, problematic, that those who transition seem to become stereotypical in their appearance. That's what she says. And she says, think about a world inhabited just by transsexuals. It would look like just would look like the set of Greece because she talks about the trans boys would have beards, muscles and tattoos and the trans women would have high heel shoes, bird's nest hair and they'd be tottering along with their push-up bras. And you know what? There is a real point there, a very, very strong point that I feel very uneasy around the transgender um, phenomenon, which is why do all the trans men want to be so stereotypically male and why do all the trans women want to be so stereotypically um, female? And thankfully, the backlash has arrived with the non-binary who are saying, no, niet, I do not want (laughs) any of this. And so thankfully that has moved on. But in 2004, it was a very, very strong point that she was making. Anyway, she has been picketed no no was it no platform is that the phrase she has been stonewalled on every single point since 2004 and so many people wrote her off as transphobic when actually she turned out to be the canary in the coal mine in lots of ways i have a very interesting story that i'm being reminded of here i worked in a women's center here in houston that that supports women who have been impacted by domestic violence and sexual abuse So we had a counseling center where I worked, and then we also had a rape crisis shelter that was an undisclosed location. Even the therapists were not allowed to know where this place was. And what we were taught as therapists there is that no men are ever allowed to know where this place is. And they would tell us in our training, even if a guy calls and says, oh, I am her brother, like I'm just here to drop off or whatever. No men ever, ever, ever. And they said that because we know in the most egregious of dangerous, controlling and psychopathic men, they will go to extreme lengths to find, harass, stalk, and unfortunately, sometimes kill their victim. And it's really hard to talk about because nobody wants to imagine that in a world where most of us have relatively healthy functional relationships, that just a house over, there can be like literally a terrorized woman. And it's so important to remember that these are extreme situations that require extreme safeguarding because it's not typical. We're not talking about a regular husband and wife who get in arguments. We're talking about really dangerous, dangerous, predatory, abusive men. So just a few years ago in 2008 is when I worked there. Wow. It was very well known that these kinds of rape crisis shelters and domestic violence shelters had to exclude males just on the off chance that some predatory guy is going to try and manipulate his way in. And so when we have these political loopholes, 
we have to stay grounded in the sad reality that even though most people who are just trans and trying to live their life, who would never intend to hurt other people, are not the same people as possibly mentally deranged, dangerous, abusive men who are going to try to use these loopholes for nefarious means. It's such a good point because, you know, I remember uh, that this feminist was being attacked and she, and she was asked, why, why do you have such a problem with men? And she said, I won't have a problem with men when they stop raping and murdering women. <laughs> no answer to that. Because the fact is the vast majority of violent and sexual crimes are committed by men. That is a fact. And in Ireland, a very interesting statistic has arose now where the, um, the, let me get this right, the sexual attacks by women has statistically doubled in Ireland since they've allowed trans women into the women's prisons. So it's gone from 1% of women to 2%, as in they have doubled the stats. Why? Because trans women are in. Because, and these are the facts, like 48% of trans women who are in prisons are in because of violent sex offences. And that's not being raised enough. Now, I'm talking about stats from England and Ireland. I don't know what they are in America. Mm. While if you look at, and I've got my numbers here, 95% of um, the offences that women commit to get them into prisons, women prisoners have committed petty crime. So 95% of the, of the crime that women have committed to get them into jail is petty crime, while 48% of the crimes that trans women have committed is violent sex crimes. It's an issue, not because trans women are inherently bad, but because there is a subset of men who have been violent and sexually dangerous to women always. And they have to be watched. The Michigan Women's Women's Festival was a a sad story in the kind of in the gender, in the politicization of gender. They started in 1976, real feminist women's music festival, if ever there was one. And they even pronounce, they even spell woman, women as in Mm W-O-M-Y-N. And they only had, they had the intention of only women born women. That's what they would only allow in. And they were closed. They were closed in 2015. It's called Mitch Fest. It's very well known. And they were closed because they decided not to admit transgender women. That's a real short version of, of, of everything that happened. But certainly it was, it was a very much a, a sign of things to come. And Johnny Best, I know he's a lovely gay music. Um, he's a producer and a musician, but he also runs arts festivals in the UK. And he wrote very eloquently about how his arts festivals were infiltrated by trans women who wished to be part of the women's um, it, women's meetings, the women's. And the, the was, this was happening as an undercurrent and we weren't aware of it. At the very same time as all this was happening culturally, there was a medical story happening and there was a medical kind of infiltration onto the kind of medical scene. So that way back in 2003, Michael Bailey wrote The Man Who Would Be Queen. And he wrote it as a result of Ray Blanchard's work. And Ray Blanchard has written some very, very interesting, um, controversial, but I just love interesting theories that bring make me think and make me think about why are some people wanting to transition? And he was very focused on the trans woman and he kind of divided them. You can tell me more about it. But he he really did do his work and he's massively cited all over the literature. And he's a serious, he's a serious um, academic, 
Ray Blanchard. And Michael Bailey decided there wasn't enough attention being given to it. This is my short version. And so he wrote The Man Who Would Be Queen. And he was stalked. He was called, he was it was called Nazi propaganda. Sexually explicit pictures of his children were put online. He was absolutely eviscerated. And this was when at this stage there was a serious pushback by led by trans women to kind of really kind of, I suppose, queer the whole situation, certainly integrate trans women into all matters of women's agenda and not allow any sort of rewriting or analysis or thought about why is this happening? And the whole concept of autogynophilia was verboten and nobody was allowed to talk about it. It was forbidden and it was considered inappropriate. While autogynophilia is, from everybody's account online, a fairly valid analysis of what's happening to some men and why they might want to be viewed as women. Mm-hmm. What is your thoughts on all that? Well, I think you summarized it well. And, you know, autogynophilia is something that even though it's very controversial in some circles, I've seen lots of males who may or may not identify as trans say, thank you, because this exactly describes this kind of odd experience I have with my own sense of gender, with my sexuality, with my identity. And I think what what happens when something becomes so politicized and there's this control of language is that we can't talk about what's really happening. And when you can't talk about what's really happening, all psychological um, work goes out the window. Because in order to properly process something, you have to confront what it truly is. I mean, this is basic therapy 101. Every single religion, wisdom, tradition, philosophy says knowing yourself truly is the key to freedom, to individual freedom. So if we're not allowed to even talk about what's really happening, such as, you know, a male person in a rape crisis center who's terrorizing the other women, or, you know, a male person who has an experience of autogynephilia, if they're not allowed to acknowledge and talk about that, we can't really psychologically explore, we can't be curious, and frankly, we can't even be compassionate because you're yeah. not allowed to be like in order to be compassionate about something it's sometimes the dark ugly parts that we have to look at with a patient for example or a client and say wow i see that and i still have a lot of compassion for you but if you're not even allowed to talk about what's really going on you can't really be truly compassionate then it's all lip service and then you're driving their deepest darkest thoughts underground because we're not allowed to talk about it, therefore they're not allowed to talk about it therefore they feel feelings of deep shame and what happens when you have deep feelings of deep shame you become very very often very defensive stroke aggressive because That's you're defending right. your your situation but just to go back a bit Ray Blanchard coined the term autogynophilia which is derived from the Greek for love of oneself as a woman and it's what he considered it, it was a male propensity to be sexually aroused by the thought of himself as a woman. And um, it's it's a very strong issue in this whole gender politics situation because people go mad 
when you say the word autogynophilia. It's just people go mad. And by the way, there is autoandrophilia. And funnily enough, I knew a friend, I have a friend, I won't mention her, but she wouldn't mind <laughs> me talking about this. And when I explained the concept of autogynophilia, she goes, oh yeah, I, I, I think I have that. And I said, really? She goes, oh yeah, for me to orgasm, I need to imagine myself as a man and then I can get over the top. And I said, really? <laughs> she goes, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was fascinating. I thought, talk about unexplored. But yeah, it's not just, with autogynophilia, it's not just sexually, you know, imagine yourself in a sexual position. It's imagining yourself breastfeeding. It's imagining yourself menstruating. It's All of those things are incredibly erotic for the autogynophilia person. And so therefore, when I'm reading a book at the moment about a man who's seeking to transition, and when the woman, his wife, had her first baby, the, the wife felt incredibly lonely because the man kept on taking over all the baby things and kept on acting the part of the mother. And she just felt lonelier and lonelier, more and more isolated until finally he came out and said he wanted to be a woman. And that was the resolution and he became a woman. But she was ousted from her mothering role in a very definitive way in the book. But just to go back to the gender activism in the medical field. So it starts off with the the, the DSM is the Bible for for people like us. And so far as this is all the diagnosis. And in 1968, trans identity was was called sexual deviation, which was way back in the dark days. And then in 1980, it was called psychosexual disorder. Then in 1994, they changed it again, the DSM-4. Now, they're always bringing out new additions and they're kind of reflecting society's cultural values. And it was called sexual and identity disorder. Then in 2013, finally, it was called gender dysphoria. And, um, you know, the reason why it was called gender dysphoria for many people was basically, and uh, that's what Ray Blanchard said, was to kind of placate the trans rights activists that they 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 campaigned for it. And in 2010, WPATH, which we've already explored before, WPATH, um, you know, they, they let out a statement to say, we need to de-psychopathologize gender issues. Because they, WPATH let out this statement, and they, we know about WPATH, they're, you know, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, but they they let out a statement with intent. We need to de-psychopathologize gender nonconformity. And then in 2012, they released WPATH Standards of Care version 7. And that standards of care has caused an extraordinary level of a change in how psychology, psychotherapy, social work and everything to do with how we handle gender has been absolutely revolutionized because of the standards of care in 2012, which is it's nine years ago. It's baby time. We're in the kindergarten of understanding this. It's a, it's an absolute radical change of all the other standards of care because there were six before that from 1979 to 2001. They all said one thing. Standards of care 2012 came in or, you know, the, the SOC 7, version 7. And they said, yeah, yeah, everything you know is wrong. Let's let's change this. And, you know, and it really changed everything. And from that I suppose everything happened as Ray Blanchard, I'm quoting here, Ray Blanchard, who was the person who, who, who had done so much work around trans women and where they might be coming from. He said Ray Blanchard was, uh, according to him, gender identity disorder was changed to gender dysphoria pri- primarily to make patients and trans activists and transsexual activist groups feel happy 
or that they'd been listened to. But I would say that the name change probably owed more to or owed as much to politics as it did to any change in the science. That's a huge sentence because that means science is changing because of politics. And anybody who's lived through the COVID area will know how politics <laughs> is shaping science and science is shaping politics and they need to be split. Scientists need to be independent. And Ken Zucker, I would argue, 2016 was very badly treated as a result. And he was, to me, the, the cornerstone of when it really got very dirty because he was, you know, he was a psychologist whose life's work was devoted to gender dysphoria and devoted to, you know, treating children with gender dysphoria. And he got targeted by activists and he was removed from being the director of the Ch Child, Youth and Family Gender Identity Clinic in Canada. And he was, um, you know, removed and he ultimately sued them. His name was ruined. His reputation was ruined. When I was doing my film in 2018, every time I brought up Ken Zucker, it, the response from people was just extraordinary. It was like I brought up the devil. And I used to bite my lip going, really, like this guy, this guy has been treated very badly. And then just before the film was out, but when we'd recorded everything so we couldn't get it back in, just before, uh, two weeks before the film came out, he was exonerated and given $500,000 in compensation. What, what are your thoughts? Well, it just strikes me how a political story can kind of start rolling down a hill and people pick it up and just keep going and going and going and continue to kind of vilify a person before they really have the information. And that's, mm. that's just really interesting to me. And I do think, you know, bringing politics into medicine is tricky. On one hand, I understand, you know, why it's valuable. Like, as a therapist, I have a lot of questions about how we diagnose and categorize mental illness that I'm not really on board with. So I, I get it to some degree. But, you know, I'm thinking about how language is so important in our ability to describe and explain things in a way that we have a common understanding of something. So the fact that right now we are in the time where people are claiming biological sex isn't really real. I mean, we'll touch on this with queer theory, but I'm thinking about um, Joanna Olson Kennedy, who's the physician in California, who's getting millions of dollars to study early childhood intervention for gender dysphoria. I mean, she's the doctor who's pushing younger and younger um, kind of interventions. And I noticed that she always calls her child patients people. Oh. She always refers to them as people. And I think it's just a fascinating thing. Like when we start taking a political lens on things, you know, you don't want to imply that children can't consent. So you don't want to call them children because it's infantilizing. And we want to make sure that we kind of prop them up as individuals. So you call them people and all of a sudden you kind of change the meaning of what you're doing. Yikes. And I feel like all of this is very political. I mean, to not be able to accurately describe what is happening. And um, I mean, I want to shift gears a little bit here because there's also the psychological impact of shame. And you talked about how if a clinician or a physician or an individual has an opinion that doesn't jive with this political narrative, they are shamed. And 
I don't know if you see this with the, the population you work with, but I see this having a strong impact on young people. So a lot of the kids I work with are very sensitive and they're very oriented towards noticing others and other people's perspectives. And in these online spaces, there can be a really strong uh, imposition of kind of group values. And depending on what your group is, you might have to kind of betray your own instincts in order to do the right thing. So for example, you know, if a young woman wants to talk about her sexual orientation in an online forum or on Reddit or something, and she says, I'm attracted to girls, that has to include trans girls. And so if you're trying to figure out who you are and you don't really have a strong sense of boundaries yet, this political pressure not to offend anybody or oppress anybody actually interferes with your ability to figure out who you are as a person. Our visceral, the the problem with political political, kind of language control is that it it forces us to betray our visceral reactions. And I'm just thinking about, you know, the, the rape crisis counseling center that I used to work at. Women who have been through these types of horrific experiences with male partners, they have a visceral reaction when they're in a vulnerable position, like changing, let's say, or taking a, a shower to seeing a male person in their space. It's a visceral reaction. It's not a political choice. It's just how your body responds based on your trauma. So how can we say that we're being psychologically minded while at the same time asking people to betray their psychological process of healing? What you need to do for your own safety at this particular point in time gets thrown out the window in order to make a politically appeasing decision about who gets into your rape crisis center. And this is a really good point, what you're what you're raising here, because in a way I was just kind of going through the analysis without going deeper, because the fact is that we we have biological responses after trauma and they are like there was a famous story a few years ago about the transphobic dog. And this was about a dog that uh, a trans woman was talking about and talking about how the dog used to have a very strong reaction to men. And she didn't understand this trans woman, didn't understand why the dog had a very strong reaction to her because she was a trans woman. And there was an awful lot of talk around this. And she, and, you know, people made a quite funny kind of stories around the transphobic dog. But the point was the trans woman genuinely thought, I'm now a woman. Why does this dog not realize the dog had been very badly treated by men? And the dog, without any political, without any right wing neo-Nazi <laughs> agenda, the dog had a visceral biological reaction to this trans woman and used to attack it every time the trans woman tried to make friends with it. And that's a very interesting point, because, again, when we've been attacked, we are animals. We can be as sophisticated as we wish. We are animals. We are mammals. You know, you know what I mean? And so there is a biological component to us that we can't shake and it has to be respected just as much as our sophisticated language. And we're going to go into how sophisticated we've become in language. <laughs> theory. But we really have become very sophisticated. And in a way, it's very much that concept of it might work in theory, but does it work in practice? And, you know, we, we have to look at that. I do want to just 
point just before we finish, I do want to talk about as the whole DSM was changing. And I know in the Irish media, people have said, oh, we can't do any analysis of any children before 2012 because they had a different diagnosis. So it's a different situation. And I'm like, schizophrenia had a different diagnosis, like loads of different conditions had different diagnoses. And I'm not saying schizophrenia is the same as gender dysphoria. I'm saying conditions often are renamed. It's no biggie. The research is the same thing. But I want to point out about the ICD, which is the International Classification of Diseases, and their work in, with the w, uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, because they also kind of de-psychopathologized, pathologized, de-psychopathologized, i.e. we're going to ma- integrate this term gender dysphoria into society so that it is not a condition that needs any medical attention. Why? Because we want to culturally break that down. And we want to make it so that if you just become trans, you just take your medication or you don't take your medication and you integrate into the other sex immediately, legally and on every other way. And all I'm requiring is thought and discussion and analysis to make sure that this is appropriate so that we don't go fast to forward too fast. But yeah, so what they did in 2018, the ICD-11, is they decided to do make a gender incongruence was the big kind of diagnosis. And incongruence is not a mental disorder, and nor is it. If you look at Boy George in the 1980s, of course, gender incongruence is not a mental disorder. But a crucial thing that the WHO did was they moved gender incongruence from the chapter about mental health disorders into the chapter about sexual health. And then there was an interesting kind of point raised by Griffin and Clyde in a journal, a peer-reviewed journal, and they said, we note that the ICD-11 has dropped gender dysphoria from its chapter on mental and behavioural disorders and moved it to its chapter on sexual health. What then is the exact nature of this sexual health disorder? Are children necessarily prescribed puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones because they suffer from a sexual health issue? Very good. I know uh, Griffin and Clyde and they're brilliant. And, you know, these are really, really complicated issues because you kind of think, oh, yeah, we're moving it. It's all great. And then you think, hang on a second, sexual health. So a three year old like me who had these gender issues had an issue with sexual health as opposed to a gender issue or maybe roles or maybe societal issue. What I had, I don't know, but I don't think it was a sexual health issue. Mm-hmm. What is it like then? I guess, I mean, your story is so unique, Stella, in that you... You were so convinced you were a boy for so many years at a very that I should different, be a boy. That you should be a boy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you for clarifying that you should be <laughs> a boy. I've become very forensic. <laughs> but I mean, as a person who's lived through that, do you think you would have been served by the mental health community being political about your experience? No, I tell you why, because I I hate medicalizing anything. So had I medicalized my body, if I had medicalized, I if I the idea of being in and people forget it, trans people often forget this, hanging around waiting rooms, constantly attending to your medical needs is a really exhausting kind of occupation. I would have hated that. And also because I've so fully integrated into my body, you know, my if I look over my life before I die, I will think being pregnant, having babies, like the, probably the most amazing experience of my life was actually giving birth. And I'm not saying I enjoyed it, but it was so animal and extraordinary. Breastfeeding and all that. Man, I have completely integrated into being a woman and yeah. I would have missed it all. Had I been born a man, 
Honestly, I think it would have been a great man. <laughs> but I was born a woman. I worked with what I have. And now I'm I'm perfectly integrated. And I'm glad I didn't reject myself. And you're talking about if you had been medicalized. I mean, what if you had become like a political prop? I mean, what if there was... TV cameras on you and your family had just made you this political oh, yeah. tool. Yeah. You know what I would say is my, my, my yin, have I got it right? My yin was overdeveloped, which is the dark, tough black side of me, the mm. fighter in me. And my yang was over underdeveloped back then. And now my therapist healer side, my gentler side has very much come to the fore. And that would have been lost had I become this strong, masculine, butch, male woman. Hmm. So that was our whistle stop tour through gender, the politics of gender and the politicization of gender. And I think it's brought us to the conclusion that it's become polarized and it perhaps would really benefit from some more thoughtful analysis and less reactionary politics. And if we are in a, in a heightened kind of state around it, we need to take a step back and take some perspective and think, am I being fed by the media and by my peers to be heightened about this when really the only thing that will get us through in a civilised society is thoughtful analysis? It's all we've got. We don't have anything else except thoughtful analysis to make for a better society. And for those of you listening who are wondering how some very unusual and hard to defend ideas have become political... We'll be covering that in our next episode where we dive into queer theory. So that will be a good one to check out. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit Rethink ime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 